Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks so much for joining us for another week of Take Two. I still can't believe it's 2020. We've been waiting for the future so long, and we're finally here. If you are watching today, you're going to say, that is not Greg Hughes. If you're listening, you'll notice, and the voice comes in just a minute. Greg Hughes, if you haven't heard, finally, after a long wait, announced that he is in it to win it for the gubernatorial race. Six big names now. And uh, joining us and filling his chair today, we have Dan McKay, Utah State Senator. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Heidi. And Mara Carabello here, as always. So it's going to be good times, but uh, just in case people don't know much about you, you're a state senator. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, Let's see. I've been state senator for a year and then I was in the house for seven years before that. Um, I live in Riverton and we have six kids, my wife and I do. Okay, random fact. You said you've got a good one for us about you. Yeah, so my random fact is obviously no one's going to see it, but I was bit by a cobra and I survived it. Wow. So that's my Where random were fact. Where you wear a cobra? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I lived in India and right. in Nepal for a while. So nice. Ooh, why? Yeah. My LDS mission, sir. Yeah. Awesome. And they just have cobras that when you wake up in the morning bite you? Or no, you on, like, if you're, if you're a 20-year-old uh, and you weren't blessed with above-average intelligence, you put a cobra <laughs> on your shoulder awesome. to take a picture. Really? And then shortly thereafter, it, it changed its mind on whether or not yeah. it was my friend. All right, so anti-venom works. Uh, well, and that was a funny thing. So, you know, of course, in Boy Scouts, you learn. You, you kind just of, suck it out. You start sucking it on it. And I did. <laughs> and I did. And I, I, I asked the, the gentleman. I said, that was the, the snake charmer. I said, mm-hmm. so, you know, you've, they can take the venom out every day. And I said, you, you took it out this morning. And he says, well, we'll know in about 30 seconds. Oh, wow. Which was, you wow. know. Fortuitous. It, I got a little bruise and that kind of stuff. And that Otherwise, was it. I was fine. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Oh, I know my husband's strange. like main goal is to be bitten by a small shark, not one that would kill him. Oh wow. But just to have a good story. So he, I'm That's sure he'd odd. be jealous of this. I know, right? A small shark. Well, we lived in Florida for five or six years, and it's the shark bite capital where we lived. Mm-hmm. And there were small sharks that wouldn't kill you; they would just mm. nibble you. Oh. And then you had a cool yeah, scar yeah, for story. parties. And in the yeah. story, you leave out the small part. Yeah, you, you leave out the small part. Sh- just the shark, shark bite. Right? Do you yeah. have any weird bites we should know about? Um, you know, no. I have a BB wound from my brother that I'm oh, still holding close yes. from my my eight year old. I um, when I lived in Uganda, I had a lot of green mambas, mm. which are super poisonous. Super poisonous. There's my bonding yeah. story. And why there did you, you live there? Community development. It was right when microeconomics and uh, women uh, economic issues were going on, and Idi Amin had just left. Tanzania in the Ugandan area, so I went for several years doing community development work. So many cool experiences. I need to get out more. Wow. All right, (laughs) so I can get bitten by something wild. You could sell your house and go camping for a while. I know. That's that's the way to go. It's the way to go these days. Make some money and just hide out for a (laughs) while. All right, there are a ton of things to talk about. Since Greg's not here, we can... uh, Talk more Finally openly. talk about him. Yes, talk about him, which will be fun. So if you're listening right now, Greg, sorry, you knew this was bound to happen. But uh, the crazy thing is, and I think this is an awesome thing for the state of Utah, that we have an open seat and we have six really good qualified 
names in the race. When you're looking at this race, are you thinking, you know, there's someone who's a clear winner right now, or do you think that when you have six people, this is going to spread it out and it's going to be a dogfight? Well, you'll remember the Salt Lake City Mayor race. Yes. Right? Everyone said, why is anyone else running? Jim is so, Jim DeBacchus is so far ahead in the polls. Why is anyone else running? Mm -hmm. And then he didn't make the primary. Right. Mm -hmm. And that just shows the nature of campaigns and what you learn from early polls, especially when there's high name ID type of candidates, is you, you quickly identify what their ceiling is. Right. And so if I'm if I'm Spencer or, or I'm John Huntsman, I'm looking at those numbers that are coming out early and I'm a little worried because those are their ceiling and they can only. And, and now the other candidates, their job will be what can they take from that. Right. I completely agree with Dan about how interesting 2020 is and that usually at this point the back rooms are a race calling and there's some yeah. coalescing around who will win. It's not true this year. Mm -hmm. People are not sure and and there are several different strategies. We'll take our, our friend Greg. Greg is the only one who's announced he's not going to do a signature gathering alternative and just go through convention and that clearly is a strategic plan for him in which he's uh, you know shooting there and, and it makes some sense but it also might not make some sense. Yeah. And Huntsman has a road, and, and as you said, they're all qualified. And what I find so interesting about this race is that no matter what we say in a soundbite, it's not settled at all. Not and there's lots of room to, to discuss and to see um, who's going to rise to the top and who's going to start to resonate. I think an interesting question is how you pop through a field this large, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And how do you Six distinguish yourself? And who gets traction and who doesn't? And what I like is we don't know yet. We don't, and they're all dynamic. They all have something to bring. The shout out we should probably give too is Bishop still, you know, he's still, he's still tipping could be a little, one of them, right? and he could go the same route as Greg Hughes, where he's not collecting sure. signatures. He's told several people that, um, include us here at Two News, that he's decided whether he's going to run or not, but he hasn't told us yet. Is there a good reason why he'd hold back at this point? You know, I mean, I think he's a long-standing strategist. He's been in this. He's he's been in the public sector for so long. I think he's aware of of the components of name ID. I also have you have to suspect that where Rob Bishop, as you suggest, where his bread and butter is, is with um, delegates and the Republican system sure. people. And so there's maybe some gamesmanship to holding on. You're you're not going the generalized route. You're going the specific route. So he's. He's got some room. As we all need to be reminded, the formal declarations happen in mid-March, even though we're in the midst of talking about yeah. going on races. We still have a few weeks where others can show up. Yeah. And pardon the expression, candidates love to be flirted with. Right. They do. Is, is this a terrible thing? I mean, mm -hmm. we all did probably like in junior high and mm -hmm. high school, right? And it's no different. Uh, if you're a potential nominee, people are peppering you. Hey, are you Ooh, You want people to ask. Mm -hmm. you got people asking you questions. You're thinking about running, and, the, and they're... And you're relevant, right? You're part of the story. We're still talking about Rob. And honestly, if Rob decides to run, he's going to be formidable as well. Can you imagine seven highly qualified candidates for state governor? That's amazing. Right. I love to see that because oftentimes when you go to a state and it's a one-party state, which Utah, I think, largely is still. I think we're moving away from that. But I think it largely is. Sometimes you can see those races where they're uncontested or there's a are couple people. Are we moving people. away from it? Come on. I think we are. I think, Mara, don't you think we're moving away from it? I think the, we are. I think, I think the assessment that the statewide seats are just heavily Republican is fair. I think that to say every seat is Republican is, is, doesn't oh, have an awareness. Yeah. And certainly who we always forget are local electeds, right? When we yeah. talk about who is mm -hmm. elected, we forget locals. And locals actually, and most of them are nonpartisan, but you, you sort of know their disposition. So I do think that as um, we 
we diversify a little more. And I'm I'm not just ex suggesting people moving in. I'm just saying yeah. as Utah changes, I do think there's more competitive race. We yeah. would have to say at a statewide level, though, you're really looking at it yeah. being a Republican race. The other have thing the Democrats even put a no. That's what I've been waiting for. A couple of people, but a couple names, but like no, who? like nobody's own member, really and that would be that's a really good indicators. I'm thinking I don't remember their names. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they they did they didn't come from much traditional experience. The other thing that's really interesting about 2020, we've had this option to signature gather, which essentially changes the dynamic at convention and somewhat changes the dynamic in the primary. This is only the third time, third cycle as we yeah. would say, so it's two years. We're new at this. It, we're new. And so we haven't established traditions. I've noticed a lot of people want to point to 16 or want to point to 18. It was a different lay of the land. Yep. So what, again, I love is, yes, you can you can look at those and try and figure out if it indicates any strategy, but we have never had an open test where we have multiple places. So yep. this is the moment I'm going to give a shout out, particularly those in Salt Lake County who have already received, if you're unaffiliated, you've already received a question yep. from the clerk's office saying, hey, register for um, the presidential election. Yeah. And let me just tell you why we should do that. We should do that because Utah has been looking for national relevance for yeah. a while. We've changed the time, both Republicans and Democrats, up, trying yeah. to get people to pay attention to our votes and our electoral votes. And we, we've, we've been playing with it for a while. This year we're part of Super Tuesday, and while we may not feel it this year, if we all get out and register. And you know, for those of you who love being unaffiliated, you know, one, you can you can participate in the Democrats if you want to as an affiliate, but you can also register for a Republican if you want and change it back. But Easy the tiger. the uh, well, a lot for, of people are the, doing it for a the presidential. <laughs> the reason to do it though is then if we can get a high enough turnout, maybe for the next presidential cycle, Utah yeah. starts to get in play. Just remember, if you register as a Democrat for the primary in the in the presidential race, you can't change your affiliation at that point. And then in in July, is it July? Yeah, July right. for the primary, you can't then be you know be a Republican. And for those of you who want to sign a ballot to support a Republican governor's candidate, you should probably keep your yeah. registration because it'll mess up. That they getting their signatures for those races. Yeah, it could get confusing. And I have spoken to some people who I think are hard and fast Democrats, but they realize they're in a state where if they want to be a part of the conversation, they need to re register as a Republican so right. they can be in that conversation early. So it's interesting to watch because I think a lot of times the reason why it's a closed primary is Republicans think that all the naughty Democrats are going to come and vote for the weakest candidate that their Democrat can beat. But... I don't know if that's the case. Do you think it is? I think there's a weakest. I don't think there is no weak link this time, right? <laughs> Exactly. There is no one on that on that six or seven candidate race who you'd look at and say, you know, that person is probably going to lose to a Democrat if a Democrat was going to run. I'm a also going to give a shout out to those who are left of center, and I won't name names, but you have some options in the Republican primary for those who do reflect left of center values. Yeah, you That's know, right, there are options. Statistically, nationwide, <laughs> they say that it's less than like one, like half a percent, one percent of people that actually play that Switch, game. Yeah. yeah, but people, once they make a choice about an affiliation, they like to play in their team's game, right? It's true. And, and the hard part is, when you have such a competitive Democratic primary field as well, and you have Super Tuesday, it is hard not to want to be part of that, yeah. right? And the, it, like I felt that way with the Republican race last time, it's hard not to want to be part of that. Yeah. So 
What a, 2020 is going to be awesome. It is going to be awesome. And I can't believe that we're already, I feel like not that long ago, we were like, oh my gosh, it's still two and a half years to the race. But we're in it now where we're like, oh, mm -hmm. we've got 10 months. This is going to be some hard running. While we're talking about elections, uh, Governor Herbert is still in office right now, and he came out with his budget, $20 billion. Still? Is it like underlining um, still? Well, he, well, he's there. He exists. Yeah. So um, he's still in charge right now. Uh, $20 billion. That's a lot of money when you think about our budget. There's some interesting things that came out of this. He put a freeze on higher ed. Uh, was this a good idea? I know that families, I mean, it's a lot of money that's going in there, and he wants the universities accountable for where that money's going. So here's how I think of the governor's budget. Yep. I think it's a great way for the executive branch to use their bully pulpit. And I think it's a great way for them to indicate or cater to interests they have. And I don't yeah. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like, he's sort of using that to say these should be the priorities. Yeah. And here's what we should do. A couple of things that happened, though, is, I mean, the 20, it's a big budget. And it so I think if I were a legislator, I'd love it because I'm probably coming in under that and looking pretty sharp. The other thing that you'll hear from legislators um, is that, you know, they, I'll, I'll be the more brazen version. They take a, a, a glance and throw it in the garbage. So sometimes the governor's budget is not really used. It's not the role of the executive branch to lay out. But it does indicate where he might put some energy around. And the other thing the governor's budget should do, and is interesting to look at, is it somewhat locks in the departments mm -hmm. about where those priorities are yeah. and, and gives some limits to how department spending is going on. So I think what Governor Herbert told us again is he's doubling down on education. I think there were many of us who loved to see the emphasis on the young, the pre-K, and that we still need to fill that. And most of the data is showing that those are really good investments. Um, he also really doubled down on air quality, which continues to be a top issue for voters and a place that we're all frustrated and, and working on um, to go. So he really did, if anything, more than ever really double down, not only on education, but the spending of it. So if Governor Herbert were a social media influencer, I think he'd say hashtag budget goals. Now, you're one yeah. of those legislators that we yeah. were talking about. Are you heeding what the governor said, or do you have your own plans, and you're going to chuck it in the garbage? I think that the, I think that the governor is – the budget – uh, every year is always an interesting component when the governor comes out for it, right? And I, I think when I started in the legislature, we were close to $15 billion. Right. And now here we are eight years later, and we're close to $20 billion, That's right? insane, For, yeah. That's a big number jump, right? We've seen a 25%-ish mm -hmm. jump in our budget in the last eight years. It's a big deal. Um, and, and when you see this year, though, when I look at the budget, I see Governor Herbert trying to steady the ship after tax reform. Right? So there's been a lot of concern about tax reform, how it's going to be implemented, who it impacts. There's a lot of, in, in my opinion, misinformation about tax reform, what it does, what it doesn't do, What's who's the misinformation? What's the fake news people are believing at home? Oh, I've heard everything from this is a massive tax increase on the poor. I've heard that this is a massive tax increase on the middle class. I've heard that only the rich benefit. I mean, you go down the list of some of those things. And, and when you look at the governor's budget, He's trying to help education feel at the end of the day that while the income tax may not, you know, have as much money coming into it as it was previously, you still have a serious significant commitment from the state on education, one. Two, I think when you look at the key priorities, when we have state money and we have money to mm -hmm. spend, the governor is focused on spending it on one-time projects because we saw this in 2008. 
The recession had already started in 2007, but we were so ahead of our skis that we had so much money coming in that it appeared to be scheduled for in our forecast. And then we had to come back in special session to trim back the budget. And so you start to see the governor spending money on one-time projects, right? And that is the best way in, from the legislative standpoint, to shore up the budget, is to spend it on one-time infrastructure-only cost so that when that money is spent, it's not committed to the next. And two, if we need to roll it back somehow, there are projects we can you know, undo or roll back. So I, I like the governor's budget from that standpoint. Let's talk a little bit about the taxes right now. You mentioned um, the tax switch. Uh, the tax referendum we've been talking about for weeks here now, and I don't think any of us thought the referendum really had legs and that they would get the signatures they needed. But Mara, uh, Harmons came in yesterday out of the middle of nowhere and said they're going to open their stores to signature gathering. The governor was not too pleased. I have his statement on it right here. Uh, he says, we are disappointed in Harmon's actions to allow signature gathering to repeal the recently enacted tax modernization package at their stores. As a corporate citizen in the state, they have a right to engage in the political process, but they also have the responsibility to do so in a way that elevates the public's discourse and is based on facts and not emotion. Is Harmon's going after our emotions? Are they going to get this done? Who's right here? <laughs> Harmon's has been a great corporate partner in this community and should be applauded. Any private sector business that wants to use their voice to speak out. Harmon's is not inflammatory. The corporation's not inflammatory. It's not inflammatory to say you can find this if you want it at our location. And, and I, I doubt they will be. They're not shilling it. They're, they are offering a tremendous opportunity for a public forum, for a public space to gather in. Mm -hmm. I will say um, uh, there, there's this, this momentum that I hope that elected officials, and I say it generally, elected officials are listening to, which is there may be miscommunication, mm -hmm. but when you've offered a tax package that cuts taxes and people are still angry with you, I would just tell you, you need to still continue to communicate that issue. It's not being heard. I, I will also point out that if your answer to the public not liking what you're doing is you just don't understand it's rather patronizing and and that for an elected official to sort of be patronizing of a private sector or a citizen who doesn't agree with them disagreement by itself is not discourse and is not in the gutter yeah. um, and, and so I think it, it I, I appreciate that Harmons is is stepping in I actually trust I've worked with Harmons as a corporate steward and they're mm. good corporate stewards. Will they take them across the line with the tax referendum? You know what's interesting is I'm gonna still say my and, and I think a, a misnomer here, misinformation here is we don't want to become like California. One of the things I'm going to say that's so interesting about this mm -hmm. tax initiative part is that every other referendum has had kind of a special interest group behind it. This just still has a group of people, be it misinformation or not, yeah. that are kind of getting worked in. It's got some mojo. And I will mm -hmm. say I hope the legislature sees that they still need to have the conversation. Having said all that, having been from my seat pleased with mm -hmm. the discourse and pleased with people, the bar is so high, I will still be surprised if they get the signatures they need. Yeah. In the governor's statement yesterday, he said, taken as a whole, 85% of all Utahns are better off under the new tax system than they are under the current one. Uh, do you agree with the governor on this, that Harmon's is going down the wrong route and they're spreading misinformation? Or? I've probably taken a different tact than, than mm -hmm. maybe the governor and probably some of my colleagues. At the end of the day, I think the referendum process is, is an important participation element, yeah. right? And to Maura's point, like, when, when the citizens are speaking, I think there is a value to, to listening and saying, you know, maybe we should keep working on tax policy. We do every year. 
We pass tax bills every year. We change the tax policy every year. It's one of the reasons we wait till after the legislative session to start writing rules about it because we're never going to keep it the same, right? Um, but there's there's a lot of listening going on. You know, we've been talking for the last couple of days as legislators, you know, in our caucus meetings about what should be done. Uh, you know, if it if it qualifies for the ballot, what what should we do? If it doesn't, what should we do? And we're, we're starting to look at some of those things. The one thing that does seem to be universal, and and I love Bob Harmon because I think at the end of the day, the, I agree with you more. Uh, Harmon's has been a pillar of this community. And I appreciate that they have an opinion. They should. And if they feel like, and if people feel like signing the referendum, by all means, do it. I'm certain by putting that pressure back on us, it will put us in a position where we can get more creative, we can do something differently and, and, and solve the problem. Um, the, the one thing, though, that I would hate to have people walk away from is that we don't listen, we don't care, you know what I mean? Or that, you know, I, I feel badly when, because I really do think there is a lot of misunderstanding. Because I get, you know, constituents reach out to me about one issue or another, and, and this one I've had the most uh, confusion about. Um, and so they're calling you and asking yeah, questions. Yeah, because, well, and I, and I answer my own phone, so, you know, it's, I, I'm able to do that. But, but it's interesting, it, when you're sitting in these tax policy conversations and everybody's kind of running down what they're concerned about, it's easy to address the mm -hmm. question because everybody thinks the whole slate of services are being taxed now. It's not. And, and the bill's been significantly uh, simplified. And I, I would say this. Tax policy is complicated, and as a person who loves tax policy, I'm super excited. I know. <laughs> I'm super excited, though, that the state is talking about it because it's complex, and I'm grateful that people are getting educated about it. And is there more we can do? Yeah. Is there more we should do? Definitely. So this is just step one. I don't think tax policy is ever going to be in concrete. I, I agree. I will still say, just a shout out to the other side, this is not the best work we can do on tax reform. From my seat, and, and what I like is the openness about the complexity, but I do think they picked, I think that lobbying was a big part of which industries were connected to, and I thought that was political. And like I'm what? even like embraced, oh, I'm I mean, embraced on the, I mean, we time. looked at all the professional <laughs> services, and those are all gone now, which and one? now there's smaller professional services. And, and attorneys and real estate agents, we, we've not done anything okay, well, the real estate industry well, in a long two. time. Can I, can I two okay, seconds. take two. two. Ooh, this, that's the name of the is, podcast. Yeah. Take two. Yeah, nice. Ooh, so, okay. Okay, so real estate agents, right? We tax property. We sure. tax real estate agents' sure. income. So now we're going to add another cost, and then we're going to go out there and, and put legislative money into affordable housing? Ooh, the realtors. The list of things that we are Hold taxing, on, the professional services Hold industries that we're taxing, could make that exact same argument. But really the heart but of it is I'm not going to let you finish because i got these two. Attorneys at the end of the day. Then attorneys, you look we're going to make due process and collecting due process more expensive. Mora, come on. Walking over me doesn't help. No. Oh, this is fun having you I know. I'm just telling you. You, you cannot make due process more expensive. Okay, so Dan, when they started, the point was we have an imbalance, you, and they and we slow talked through people about where uh, where income tax goes and yeah. where sales tax goes. And the very problem that was identified is that we needed to change the imbalance, yeah. and the solution is not anyone's version of changing that imbalance, including the Republicans. And that's where I have a problem with the process. The process yeah. then, what happens in the middle? Lobbying. Yeah. And so I would just suggest this is not the heart of the imbalance issue we spoke of. Giving a refund is categorically counter to saying we don't have enough funding on the sales side to take care of our imbalance. So part of our solution is a refund. I'm not suggesting a refund's even bad. I'm just saying that shows the confusion. 
the legislature laid down the facts and the markers for why this was needed yeah. and then followed politics on the solution. So, and, and I think sales tax on food needs a big, long, deep breath that we've had, we've had for decades now in the discussion. And so I'm just saying for those of us who still have anxiety about the methods and the means, yeah. I think it's fair. I think it's yeah. fair for this package. Agreed with you that tax reform happens every year. Yeah. But it was the legislator who raised their hands and said, we're going to do epic tax reform. And so if you're going to raise your hand and say you're going to do epic tax reform, then you have to do the due diligence, dot your I's, cross your T's. And I just don't think, while I will agree that everyone was well-intended, there are no bad actors, I don't think saying that the individuals are bad is true at all. I will say the collective I do not think represents the solutions they told us they were going to do for us as citizens. No. Ooh. And just, when Greg was sitting here, he could say that he wasn't a part of the process because he's watching from the outside yeah. in now. You're inside of it. Inside of the process, did you feel frustrated like you didn't have enough time or didn't have time to understand and wrap no. your mind around all of it? No. I Look, the, the process for me, we started, I mean, I've been in the legislature for, like I said, eight years, uh, eight legislative sessions. When I got in the legislature, we talked about the fundamental system, systemic imbalance mm -hmm. in our funding sources. So this is years in the works. We are eight years into this. And tomorrow's point, yeah, the process, I will argue that the process could have been better, right? Uh, I'm not sure about the outcome because mm -hmm. the outcome, it takes 38, 15, and 1. 38 votes in the House, 15 votes in the Senate, one vote in from the governor to sign the bill, right? And... Could there be another way? Like, let's make Greg Hughes, for all, all intents and purposes, king for a day and let him write a bill about how we would change the taxes, He'll right? He'll do it, right? He'll do it his way. Right. And the problem is, you've got to bring all 104 little governors into a room, and all of them have to make a decision about what their fingerprint's going to be on the bill. And I can point to all the different ways the bill could be different or would be different if I was in charge. I'm not. I know this is one way we could take a step forward, Mm -hmm. And history will judge whether or not it's positive. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of positive things done in, the, in this in this uh, bill, but the idea that we're going to bind our hands from an income standpoint as to what pocket you're allowed to pull money out of to put into what type of deal makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Little governors, that's what I'm going to call you in my head now. A healthy wrinkle actually is um, that the vast majority of those running for governor have taken partial or some. I mean, all of them have at this point. Have I think it's five out of six I, I, and I Greg like says he won't criticize. Right. Greg says he won't criticize the legislature. Right. And, and I'm, He's been there. I'm not that. trying to but weigh But he probably that. is thinking that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's interesting. It, it, I love that divergence of point of view within the same point of view. I mean, the fact that yeah. things are complicated shows. But it is interesting that the Republican candidates are trying to figure out how to split all the voices that they're hearing. Yeah. I would say adulting's hard. Legislating's hard, exactly. too. I don't know if, if I can do that. If you don't have a vote, it's easy to be maybe or no. That's, That's true. all I so can say true. to everybody. Exactly. It is easy to be maybe or no. True. Going, ah, I don't know. I don't know what I would do differently or that kind of thing. That doesn't exist it's in true. the legislature. There's no maybe button, Heidi. There's no maybe button. Oh, but we're in elementary school and they pass you the note and they're like, do you like me? Yes, no, or maybe. Maybe it was just so easy because then mm, you left yeah. it open, right? I never Check got yes, those no, or maybe. notes, so I'll just have to rely on your experience. <laughs> I just said them to kids. I never got them back. <laughs> Cry me a river. All right. I have like a billion topics I want to get to, but we're getting close to time. I do want to talk about the inland port ruling. Uh, we have all of these uh, national topics rolling around, but I was a little um, surprised uh, yesterday when we got the ruling back. Were you surprised that uh, the judge ruled against Salt Lake City on each of those counts? Here's what I thought was interesting about that verdict is that um, 
<laughs> you know, the judges can rule and add sort of contextual language or discretionary language. Um, what I thought was interesting about that ruling, so it ruled in favor of the state, which therefore sort of ruled in favor of the Port Authority. What was interesting about that is uh, it was point by point. There, there was no disagreement on the sections and clauses. Uh, the, the lawsuit did bring in some overlapping and some nuance, which, which lawsuits can do. And he quite systematically supported the state's position on all of it. As you know, Aaron Mendenhall has already said that they will appeal that decision. People can see that any way they want, but one way to see that is that's just what an opposing entity often does that says, let's go entirely through. I want to I wanna double check that ruling. So I don't necessarily want to see that as an overly aggressive action by the city, although for sure local municipalities and jurisdictions, this is a jurisdictional question. But I will say what I was struck by is how thoroughly the ruling came out in favor of the state of Utah. Is the city getting screwed in your mind with the deal? Um, so, so the process that they went through, I do not think was in the city's favor. I think um, that Mayor Biskupski leaving the table didn't work. And I think the breakdown of communication didn't work. And Salt Lake City and its residents have a bad taste in their mouth about the process that I'm going to say to the Biskupski administration, they own half of that problem. And I think what happened is the legislature got aggressive and sort of said, eh, we can do what we want. So the process stunk. I will tell you that I don't think at the end of the day this has to turn out bad for Salt Lake City. I think at the end of the day they can find some tax relief. I think at the end of the day they can direct some of this mitigation money. I think if you really understood the Port Authority, you would understand that the Port Authority's um, money could be spent to mitigate all the concerns they have. One of the misnomers about the authority is that I, I think people think that if, if they had won the lawsuit, the port would go away. Now, the port is a bunch of property held by private developers yeah. who are developing one way or another. The authority allows maybe an insert of public will. So whether that's in climate mitigation, whether that's in green building, whether that's in schools, I don't know. We haven't figured. No one has heard what the port There's authority is going understand. to be there. Yeah. But I will say I do think there are some outcomes for Salt Lake City that they could get behind if everyone, all of those Salt Lakers, can get over the fact that the process was didn't feel great. Yeah. Uh, before we go, I want you to have your say on this. Did legislators screw the city? Did you guys make it so they couldn't have a say? Or does this ruling right now say, okay, well, we can move on. We made good decisions. The state's in charge. We can all work kindly with each other and make this work. What do you want me to say here, Heidi? I want you to say whatever <laughs> you want to say. Oh, lovely. Uh, well, the idea that something that is going to be an economic boom for the state and mm -hmm. the surrounding region is going to screw the city, so to speak, uh, is somewhat of an interesting mm -hmm. conversation to have. Um, I, I've struggled uh, to watch what I think really will be good for the state yeah. and good for the city, even though the tax revenue will be spent differently. It's not just about money. There are economic benefits that will come into the state that far exceed what will happen on those properties and so uh, that, are, you know, that are part of the port and how the port is structured and what it becomes. Let's let's get out of let's get out of the mode of fighting and let's find a way to try and make something good happen for the state of Utah. That's what I would like to see, and that's the problem when people want to argue about process and and the mayor stepping away and all those other elements. Eh, at the end of the day, what happened was we saw an opportunity. The state did and said, how are we going to get that done? And every time we looked at the city to say, is there a way to get it done? There was hand wringing and no way to get it done. 
And so the state said, let's not miss this opportunity. And that's, that's how you got the inland port the way it is. Um, are there opportunities? And this is the one thing I'm very excited about. I think Mayor Mendenhall is, uh, is going to be a phenomenal addition for, this, uh, for the state. Uh, she brings a lot of experience and obviously a lot of, uh, I don't know, just, just good, really, to the process. And so I'm excited to see there's probably still give and take to be had on the port. Okay, I know we're out of time. The voices in my head are telling me we have to wrap up. But there's one issue I teased last week. We have to talk about super quick. So this is the lightning round of you tell me what you think. So Salt Lake City schools right now are considering the possibility that they would have later start times because they're looking at kids' brains and saying they need sleep. They would do better in school if they did. All of us here at the table have a teenager that we have to drag out of bed in the morning and send him to school. Do you like to drag them out, Mara? Yes or no? Do we like yeah, yeah, make I this go I, back? I love the morning. <laughs> yes. I love the morning argument. So I think uh, start times um, changing. I, I'm going to throw another issue into it, and I would love to see more schools look at schedules in which they flip the order. We see that people, kids like and dislike subject matter depending on the time of day they are given that mm. class. There's so much innovation. And I think I love the later start time. I love the look at changing schedules. The only thing I would ask is that I think the remedy should be found with the school districts, yep. and they might vary district to district, and it's not a legislative remedy. Sure. All right. What do you think? I think Moore is right. Uh, and lock, stock, and barrel. I think she's right. The, the, the idea that the legislature should tell everybody how to do it might not go as well in certain rural districts especially. Right. I mean, there are a lot of things to consider. They're out feeding the cows at 3 in the morning. May as yeah. well go to school at might 7. Might as well. Yeah. All right. I like this discussion. We're going to have more of it at my house. I would love an extra few minutes to sleep in. I'll be less grouchy the rest of the day. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us, both of you, today. Uh, tell your friends. Subscribe. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back again next week.